All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, happy to have all of you here uh, in person and online. We'll see if anybody else uh, comes in tonight. That's okay. What's that? He said he was. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. So um, we are kind of picking up in the middle of lesson four. So the top of page 23 in your notes um, should say verses 14 through 19 and then verse 15 the first gospel promise. That's where we left off last week. Um, and just kind of a little bit of a recap. We, we are, you know, we're going through Genesis chapter three. We're going into the fall into sin. We talked about last week, you know, kind of what happened and why it was such a big deal, right? I don't, I don't know how many people I've heard try and, you know, mock the, the the whole beginning of the Bible, not just the creation account, but even the fall into sin, right? Um, oh, it's because somebody took a bite of an apple. That really is not the point, right? Um, the point is really the first sin here is really no different than every other sin. And, and what at its root is every sin? It is listening to, trusting in, or loving something more than God, right? Um, and so you really kind of see the full gamut of all of those in what Eve does here, right? Remember when she, she, she listens to the devil over and against the word of God. She trusts the devil um, when, when he says, no, this is going to be good for you. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. This is a good thing. Um, and she even loves um, this, right? The fruit looked good, was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. She wanted it more than she wanted what God wanted, right? That, that really is what comes down to every sin, right? Every sin that you and I commit, we listen to, we trust in, we love something more than God. And that, that's what leads to every sin. Um, so don't get hung up on this whole, what kind of fruit was it? And, you know, um, that doesn't matter. Um, this, this really was the problem. So, but here is where we get into now, um, in the midst of this terrible story, we get into the first gospel promise. Now, remember, gospel, we look at this in lesson one, right? The two main teachings of the Bible, the law is the bad news, and, and not that it's bad news as in like, this is bad, we don't want to listen to the law, we don't want to look at the law. The Bible tells us the law of God is good, right? It's beautiful. This is, this is what God desires. This is what God wants to see people do. Um, and yet the bad news of it is what does it reveal in us, right? It reveals um, who we truly are, how far we have fallen short of God's glory, um, the sin that we, we commit that we're capable of. And yet the gospel is, that's what the word means. Gospel means good news. And so whenever you hear that word gospel, right, you, you, the first thought should be, this is not something God is commanding me to do. This is not something that God is telling me I have to do or else. That's the law. The gospel is always God for you in Christ. And so when you hear the word gospel, the first thing I always want you to think of is Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's about what God has done for you in Jesus, that Jesus, and this is what we're going to get into in our next couple of lessons, that Jesus lived the perfect life you and I could not live, that he died the sacrificial death that we needed 
to pay our sinful debt to God, and then he rose again victoriously. All of that, God did for you in Christ, right? Um, the gospel is always, is always for you, not expected of you or from you, right? Um, so here's the gospel promise. So Adam and Eve have just fallen into sin, and here's what God says. Take a look at the top of page 23 in your notes. On the left-hand column is, is, is Genesis 3.15. And the right-hand column is my attempt to explain it. <laughs> because it's a little bit of a, out of its context, it's a very strange verse, okay? But here is what uh, the Lord says. Now remember, who's he talking to here? You got three options. You got Adam, Eve, the devil, or the serpent. Who's God talking to? Not, not, he, he did initially, yeah, he did initially, right? Adam was the first one he came to, and it, I, we, could, we probably should have reviewed that. We looked at that last week, right? Um, Adam is the first one that God comes to, right? Um, and, and Adam says, I heard you coming, realized I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you that you were naked, right? Um, and that became the whole blame game, right? Adam said it was Eve, the woman you gave me. Eve said it was the serpent, and so now here, the Lord is going to address the serpent. The first gospel promise is made to the devil, but it is not for the devil, right? It's really spoken against the devil. Listen, this is what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All right, that's a little strange. But let me break it down. Take a look at the explanation. The Lord says, I will put enmity. God says, I'm going to create, I'm going to place hostility. Where? Between you, Satan, on the one hand, and the woman, and Eve on the other. Think about, they had kind of like started to form almost a little friendship, right? There was this, you know, very easy kind of going conversation between the two. Um, Eve had no fear, no concern, no, no desire to flee from the devil. Um, God says that's not going to be the case anymore, right? There's going to be hostility between you and, and the woman. Um, this hostility would also exist between Satan's followers. That is all of his evil angels or demons, right? We heard about an example of that in the gospel reading last Sunday. Um, uh, between you and the woman and between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring um, and the descendants of Eve, that is really all mankind, right? Um, he will crush your head. Now he's, he's gone from talking about all of your descendants, your offspring, and now he's narrowing it down to one specific descendant, right? Out of those descendants, he, one of them, will crush your head, Satan. And of course, we know who that is, right? That's going to be Jesus. And you will strike his heel. But in the process, Satan is going to inflict some serious pain on the Savior. Um, and so if you've ever seen any artwork like this, um, it can even, it can look like this. It can look like a, a couple different things. But if there's like a spear or something, running through a dragon or a serpent or something like that. This is the picture of the devil being defeated. Um, and I don't know if any of you have seen the movie, um, The Passion of the Christ. I don't remember when that came on. I was probably 10, 15 years old. Um, it, it's, it's pretty good. 
Um, I don't say that about very many Christian movies. I think a lot of them are really, really cheesy, actually. In fact, I, I avoid them because of that. Um, but The Passion of the Christ is actually pretty good. Um, and, and yet, you know, Mel Gibson is kind of the director of it. He's got a Roman Catholic background. So there's a little, there's a little freedom I think he takes in some of them. Good evening, Phil. Good to see you, bud. Um, but one of the freedoms that he takes, I think is one of the more powerful moments in the entire movie. And if you've seen it, you'll remember this part because maybe when you saw it, you thought it was really strange that when Jesus is done praying in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, um, and he, he, he gets up and you see in the background, the, the, the torches coming and there comes Judas and the, the, Ro the Roman soldiers to arrest him. Jesus stands up and he steps on the head of a snake. I don't know if you remember that. And I remember thinking to myself, that is awesome. But I also remember thinking, if people don't know the context of the Bible, they're just going to think that Jesus is like an animal or a reptile hater. They're going to have no idea why Jesus just trounced on this innocent snake. Um, but that's the picture, right? That this is what Jesus is about to embark on, okay? And there's a passage later on in the New Testament um, in 1 John chapter 3 that I think just kind of specifically talks about this. Um, Phil, we're on the top of page 23, middle of uh, lesson four. That's where we're at. Um, 1 John chapter 3 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's the fulfillment of this promise, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is what Jesus will come to do, okay? Now, our next lesson, lesson five, we're gonna go through a, a number of more Old Testament prophecies. And what we're gonna see is that each one of them kind of stacked on top of one another, set beside one another. They continue to increase in, in giving us this picture of who Jesus will be, who the Messiah will be, what he'll look like, what he'll come to do, if this is all we had, right, that would be kind of difficult, I think, to pin that down. But we're going to look at, we've got a number of more pass, uh, passages to look at. Um, but this just kind of gives you um, an example. If you take a look uh, back at verses 16 through 19, um, I had those on a previous slide. Um, you can see some of the... The, the, a larger picture of the, the consequences of sin. Um, and of course, now the, the Lord, after he, he makes this, this promise to, to the devil, he looks to the woman and he says, right? Um, this is verse 16. Um, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. To Adam, he said, um, cursed is the ground right? Because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat this food until you return to the dust. Since from, you were from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So think about all of the things that, just in kind of a very general way, the Lord says are now going to be, is now going to be true, right? Um, moms, you, you, you can thank the fall into sin. I I've been in the room. I've never done it. I couldn't. There's a reason that, that God gives women the vocation of, of childbearing. Men are far too weak to do it. Um, if, if, I made, if I would have survived the first one, I would have I quit. I would have said, that's it. We're not, we're not doing this anymore. Um, but that's, that's one of the, the, the consequences. Um, strife in marriage. This is kind of a strange one here. You read that passage, verse 16, it says, your desire will be for your husband. Well, that sounds like a good thing. 
who, who wouldn't want his wife to, um, to desire him? What kind of wife wouldn't want to desire her husband? But notice, what does the Lord mean by that? Well, look at the very next phrase. Um, and he will rule over you. Now think about what God had done when he created Adam and Eve. He had also established the roles of husband and wife within a marriage. Um, God called Adam to be the head. That's why, you know, I said, really, who does the Lord come to first after the fall into sin? He holds Adam accountable. And so does the rest of scripture. Because what does Adam do? He, he, he steps aside from his role of being head, the one who is to provide and protect and watch out for his wife. He lets her walk right into this without saying a word. Um, and Eve, if you remember, the Lord says um, to Adam, I'm going to provide a suitable helper for him. There's a head and there's a helper. And these were the roles that God established when he created Adam and Eve. And we're going to talk more about this in a future lesson when we talk a little bit more specifically about marriage. But for now, let it suffice that this is not saying, uh, this is not God saying men are better. Men are more important to me because they're the head and women are just kind of an afterthought helper. No, it's God establishing. This is kind of the way every relationship works. You have roles within a relationship. And as long as people lovingly carry out those roles, relationships can be a wonderful, beautiful thing. But when you're constantly jockeying for each other's position, what happens? There's strife. There's turmoil. That can be true in a marriage. That can be true in a business. That can be true in a friendship. Um, this is what happens. And so... Instead of Adam being this loving head whose sole purpose and goal in life was to bring glory to God by loving and serving his wife, um, now God says, he's going to want to rule over you. Eve, he's going to throw it in your face that he is your head, that he's the boss, that he's the one in charge. And, and this is exactly what we see today, Right? And so what is that going to do for Eve? What is that going to do for women? Well, we don't want to be helpers anymore. We want to be the head. My desire is going to be for his position. I want to be the head of this relationship. I want to be the head of whatever. Um, and this constant turmoil and fighting. And, and the Lord said, what I created in these roles that, that beautifully complete and fulfill and support one another, you're now constantly going to be fighting over. And so when people talk about marriage, it's really hard. That's why, right? Um, this, this whole idea of the fall into sin now brings strife into every marriage. Hard and difficult labor, right? You can blame uh, Adam and Eve for all the weeds in your garden um, and, uh, you know, all of the, the difficulties that come with manual labor, um, the difficulty of it, the, the harshness of it. Work is no longer enjoyable for most people right? Um, work is work. Um, and then finally, and ultimately, what God promised. Um, from dust you were taken, and to dust you shall return. This is why if you've ever been to a Christian funeral, um, oftentimes you'll hear that phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is where it comes from, right? This is what we recognize and understand that death is. It is the final fulfillment of this fall into sin, right? Um, from ashes and dust we were taken, and, and to, to those ashes and dust, we will return. All right, any question on, uh, questions on those verses, 14 through 19, consequences of sin, first gospel promise? 
Um, verses 20 through 24, this is kind of the end of chapter 3. We hear that the, the Lord has now barred Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He puts a, a cherubim, a big powerful angel, kind of at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, and he puts a flaming sword flashing back and forth, and we're, we're told why. Um, God says that he does not want them to eat from the tree of life and to live in their sinful state forever. So here's part of God's deliverance plan. Death is the ultimate enemy of God's people, and it is the ultimate consequence of sin. And yet here is how powerful and gracious God is. What does he say? Through death, I am going to deliver you into eternal life. And so when you get to the book of Revelation, for example, and the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible are very similar. You've got the first creation, and then in the last two chapters of Revelation, the last two chapters of the Bible, you've got the recreation. And guess what comes back? The tree of life. And God invites you and me and all believers forever to eat from that tree and live into eternity. Okay, so we're, we're barred from the tree of life now, but the day is coming when it will be all for us, okay? All right, um, just a, a little bit of a, a rundown of some of the consequences of sin. I realize I didn't have that in there. A couple of passages here. We've looked at some of these, um, especially in lesson one. Left-hand side there, of course, is the, is the Bible verse. The right-hand side, you tell me what the effect of sin is. Psalm 51, verse 5. King David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What is the consequence of sin that is described here? Sin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we talked about this in lesson one. Original sin, inherited sin. Sin is not just the stuff, the bad stuff that we do. Sin is not just the good stuff that we refuse to do. Um, the Bible really pictures now sin as, as kind of like radiation that goes throughout the world. And, and it affects and destroys everything in its path. So that sin is now something that at our very conception is written into our DNA. It's who we are, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I, it's, you know, one of the things that I, I as I go through, like, I'm going to baptize a, a baby and I, you know, I, I go through every parent, you know, before that, just talking about, here's why we baptize kids, right? Here's why we baptize babies, because the promises that God makes in baptism, babies need the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the, the white robe of righteousness of Christ, um, the promise of eternal life. Babies need that because this is true. You don't just give your kids your blue eyes and your, you know, um, your, your skin complexion and your quirky traits and characteristics, you also give your children the absolute worst of you. And your parents gave theirs to you. Um, and this is what we trace all the way back to Adam, right? And we'll, we'll look at that um, uh, on, the, on the last page. So, uh, so yeah, original sin, uh, inherited sin, natural sin, uh, Matthew 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. So um, th this kind of goes to show you again how deep our problem is. 
Um, my, my sin is not just when those hateful words leave my mouth. Where did those words originate? They originated in my heart. This is the problem. So, so when people want to say, well, I'm just going to stop sinning. And they think about controlling their hands and their mouth and other parts of their body. But the problem is you can cut your hands off. You can pluck your eyes out. You can rip your ears off. Um, and I guess you could still live. Unless you're going to cut your heart out, you're not solving the problem, right? This is where the problem really kind of originates. Um, Romans 5, verse 2, sin entered the world through one man. There it is, Adam, right? It holds him accountable. And death entered the world through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because also. What is the, the consequence of sin? The sin is passed on, and where sin is, there is death. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells the Romans. Um, so where there is, is sin, there will be death. And where there is death, its, it's, it's cause will always be sin. Um, think about that. The cause of death, the reason for death, is always sin. A um, couple more. Romans chapter 8, I like this one. Um, I don't like it, but I think it's, it's interesting. Um, it's sad, but interesting. Paul writes this in Romans 8. He says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Who is the one who subjected all of creation to frustration and sin and brokenness? Adam, right? we just saw it in the, in the last passage, right? Adam is the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be, deliberate, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So you think of the, the mountains, you think of the oceans, you think of the planets, and here Paul kind of gives them their own memory. And it's like Saturn remembers what it was like before the fall into sin. The mountains remembered the time when they didn't shake and quake and crumble and break. The oceans remember when they did not toss ships back and forth and flood entire islands and communities. They remember that they too have been subjected to frustration and they are longing for the day when they will be set free, right? So the fall into sin does not just affect you and me. It affects plants, it affects animals, it affects the solar system, um, it affects everything, right? Um, and, and it too is longing for the day when it will be set free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you think about when do you groan? That's not a very attractive noise. Um, you make it, you know, at, at my age, you make it when you stand up. When you get up in the morning, um, you know, you groan because there's pain. You groan because there's heartache. You groan because things are not right. 
It's the opposite of rejoicing, right? Um, and so you, you can, all, can you almost picture this, right? When there's an earthquake, when there's a hurricane, when there's a typhoon, when there's an asteroid that crashes to earth, this is the creation groaning, right? Um, it, it always fascinates me that people are so anti-God, but are just head over heels in love with mother nature. Um, and I don't know if it's because God is male and mother nature is female. Um, I don't know what the reason for it is, but it's like, you know, mother nature is trying to destroy you too, right? Um, I mean, <laughs> I'll never forget, like it was, it was only a couple of years ago when I learned that sinkholes were a real thing. Are you kidding me in Florida? Like the, the earth just opens up and swallowed three homes in the middle of the night. And it's like, you know, mother nature, she ain't the nicest lady either. Um, if that's what you want to try and worship, you know, the point of it is to say, why is the world this way? It, it, it's all broken. This is not the way God designed, right? And the new heavens and the new earth will be nothing like it, right? None of that will be there. Yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, right? I think um, it's always interesting, I think, to come up with hypotheticals, but you always, you know, theologically speaking, you, you tend to run into problems, right? Well, what would have happened if God didn't create the truth? What would it have been like if Jesus didn't die on the cross? I mean, there's, there's a lot of hypotheticals. I, I think the point of it is just to simply say Adam did. And because he did, here's the fallout, right? Um, and, and even though Adam, again, was not the one who took a bite of the fruit first, he is the one as the head that God holds accountable. So I honestly, I don't think it would have mattered whether or not Adam ate the fruit. Um, the, the, the fall into sin was his failure to love and serve his wife, right? And, and when she took a bite of the fruit, um, at that moment, I would say he had essentially done the same anyway, right? I mean, this is right after the Lord just said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's not like what did Adam do versus what did Eve do, right? Um, th this was one um, and, and the one failed. Um, so, yeah. All right. Um, interesting to think about this. You, you turn to the top of the next page, page 24. Another key point related to the effects of sin is the image of God. In the last lesson, we learned that this image of God refers to so many things, right? I mean, we could talk about it, you know, referring to our intellect, our ability to reason and, and make decisions, um, to, to act in a moral way, things like that. But I think just generally speaking, kind of an easy way to remember the image of God is it is a picture of and a reference to God's holiness, his righteousness, that God was set apart from all sin and, and, and destruction and chaos and death. And this is now how he creates Adam and Eve. Their mind, their will, their wants were perfectly aligned with God's. And yet now that they have fallen into sin, what happens? That image of God is something that they have lost, right? Um, and here's where we see that. 
So Genesis 127, this is what God said, right? Um, Let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. And that's how God creates Adam and Eve. You fast forward to Genesis chapter 5, and here's what it says. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. So this idea that all children are born neutral. Mom and dad might be, you know, sinful wretches, but my baby is this perfect little angel. Um, It's like, no, that child sadly is born in your image. So if you're going to tell me that you're a, a sinful human being, then this is what you beget. This is what you bring into the world, right? Um, Adam and Eve brought forth children that were not in God's image, but were in their own image. No, this is actually, this is actually, um, this is a a reference to, um, there's, uh, there's Cain and Abel, and then Seth. Seth is the third one. So you remember Cain and Abel are the first two, Cain kills Abel. Um, we get off on a really bad start at the beginning of this whole family. Um, but Seth is the one now um, that is, is born, that is referenced here. Um, so, yeah. It, but, but again, that's kind of the point, right? Why, why did God allow people to live six, seven, eight, nine hundred years? Because this is what they were doing. They were populating the earth. This is what God called them to be fruitful and multiply. How many kids can you have in 70 or 80 years? Now, I've seen families who've done a pretty good job. Um, But I mean, if you're going to populate the planet, right, um, this is going to need to be uh, longer lifespans. And that's why we see about, oh, I don't know, um, not, not that far into the Old Testament. Already at the time of Moses, um, we're told that the lifespan of people was about 70 or 80 years, which is exactly what it is today. Um, so after that had kind of, you know, run its course and started to do that. And of course, after the flood, Noah and his family need to do it all over again. Um, and so there's a couple times where we see God increasing the lifespans. So you, we look at it and go 130 years old. Um, that's really old to start having kids. But if you're going to live to be 800, that's like one eighth of your life expectancy. I mean, that would weird to think of, but it'd be like a 12 year old, right? In our day and age, having a kid. I mean, age wise, right? So 130 sounds like how in the world could you possibly raise kids at that age? Correct. Yeah. So, so you're right. So that's another one of those anomalies where, you know, how, how, what was the appearance of Adam when he was created? Um, I don't tend to think, um, you know, a lot of artwork, I think, depicts them maybe in their 20s, maybe even 30s. I, I don't tend to think they were, their appearance was that old. Um, I, I, I tend to view them more as probably mid-teenagers. Um, you know, I mean, you look in the Bible at the age, you know, a lot of people were getting married. It was pretty young. Um, so, um, but anyway, that's... Yeah, I, Adam and Eve had more kids that we're not told about, right? So, I, you know, whether Seth was actually the third son or he was the 30th, but this one is just mentioned because Seth is going to be the one through whom the promise 
the line of the Savior is going to come. So that's why he's mentioned. So you go in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Luke, and you look at the, um, uh, or Luke, I think it is. Luke, one of them goes all the way back to Adam. One of them stops at Abraham. I think Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Um, and you look at that and you see the, the lineage, right? You see the, um, the family tree, so to speak. Um, this is why Seth is mentioned. So it's not as though Adam and Eve only had three sons, um, but this is why he's mentioned. So, and even the son through whom the savior is going to come is born simply. Right. So, yeah. What? Even Seth, the, the one that is the ultimate, you know, uh, ancestor of the Savior is born not in the image of God, but in the image of the sinful parents. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and no, no, I know what people mean when they say that. I, I, I don't necessarily know that they do. Um, you know, the, the, the Bible talks about as Christians um, that we have been given this kind of remade in the image of Christ. This is kind of our, our lives of sanctification. We're going to talk all about this in, in a later lesson. But this idea that the image of God is one that you and I do not have perfectly. But by being brought to faith in Jesus, we do have glimpses of it. This idea that um, I am not a sinless person. I'm a sinful person. And yet in the eyes of God, I am a saint. Right? I am holy. I'm, I'm perfect. I'm righteous. Not because of myself but because of the perfect blood and righteousness of Jesus. And so that's kind of the, you know, this is why the, uh, you know, Jesus to Nicodemus will make the emphasis that you need to be born again, right? Because my, our first birth into this world is our birth into death, but being born again by water and the spirit is a re rebirth into eternal life. Um, and so, but I think this, to kind of simply say um, that, well, everybody is made in the image of God. Well, not really, right? Not anymore. Not in the sense that Adam and Eve were at least, right? Um, and I think you kind of see or hear something similar when, when people will say something like, well, we're all God's children. Well, yes and no, right? Y yes, in the sense that God is the one who creates every human life. But not Father in the sense of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Not that, that is only a relationship that is given to you by faith, right? Um, and so I, I understand what people mean by it. And I don't usually fight about it because I, when someone says that, at least I go, all right, well, at least that means hopefully that you love and value every human life. Um, if, if that's kind of what you take away from it, then that's not a bad thing. Um, but that isn't always what they mean. But I think that's kind of what we talked about at the beginning of this lesson, right? Um, what is the, what is the, the fall into sin mean? Um, you only go back to the passage we looked at in, in lesson one, right? There's no one who does good, not even one. There's, there's, there's good in everybody, 
from a worldly perspective in the sense that people are capable of helping an old lady across the street and you know taking their neighbor's trash out for them all of those kinds of things but when we're talking about actually righteous deeds right acts that are known and seen um and and appreciated by god and 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 praised by the angels in heaven that those are things that are only done through faith right um uh, Paul, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if I help a little old lady across the street because I'm a Christian and, and I see this woman who's in need, uh, by virtue of my faith, this is a God-pleasing act. Joe Unbeliever does the exact same thing five minutes later and helps her back across the other side of the street. That is the exact same act in the eyes of the world. Yeah, that's true. Right? It is. I mean, I, that's, that's the way the Bible talks, right? Because it's not about the act. It's about, it's about the, the connection to God through which that act is done. Right? Um, yep. <laughs> well, yes and no. Uh, Mitzi, Mitzi said, when people say, I can, I can see God in other people, it's kind of insulting to God. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that um, sort of like we looked at our bad Trinity analogies, right at the end of lesson three, uh, or lesson two, where people want to try, you know, um, uh, God is like an egg, or God is like a three-leaf clover, or I feel and experience God in the warmth of the sun, you know, um, or, you know, I see his majesty, whatever it might be. Yeah, in that sense, yeah, you're kind of downgrading God. However, there, there's something beautiful about that. When you remember the incarnation, that God wants us to see him in man. That this is how he comes to us. That God humbles himself, right? So, so that, you know, our vocation, right? What is vocation? It is, it is me seeing the face of God in my neighbor, that I love and serve my neighbor. Why? Because this is an opportunity to love and serve God. Not because God needs it, um, but my neighbor does um, and, and vice versa. And I'm telling you, you start to do that and it really does change your perspective on people. Um, it's an awesome thing. I, I have found the pandemic was partly, I think, for this but I found that my patience at restaurants and in checkout lines at grocery stores is vastly improved um, when I start considering people in their vocation. Um, and, and that the, 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 the people who are bringing me my food, right? Um, God is serving me through them. Uh, that the, 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 the guy who's checking out food, you know, um, this is probably not his goal in life. This is probably not where he saw himself when he was 12 years old, and yet he's here, and that benefits me. And so if I have to wait an extra five minutes, and I just simply look at him and say, thank you for doing your job, thank you for, for what you're doing, man, that just, you can change someone's entire day doing that, right? So yes and no, I would say, I, I understand that. And again, do I think that's what people mean when they say that? No, but I think we can, I think you can, right? Sure. Sure. 
Well, I, I, would, I, I would direct your attention to Isaiah 52 and 53, right? Um, that, that even in the worst of people, you can still see Jesus. How? Because when Jesus came for you and me and for the world, he didn't come as a king. He didn't come as some righteous kind of, you know, holier than thou goody two shoes. He came and he stood beside criminals. And um, there, was, there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him, Isaiah says, right? Um, nothing about his appearance that we would esteem him. Um, which always makes me kind of laugh when I see like paintings and pictures of Jesus and he's just this wonderful looking man. I tend to think that Jesus was probably a rather ugly guy, which is weird to think about. But I, you know, and I've seen some paintings and I, I you know, and I kind of go, that guy gets it. That's not a very attractive man. Um, that's probably closer to what Jesus looked like. Cause I, I think there's, there's kind of part of that, right? Um, so even in that, right? Um, I would still say, if nothing else, um, see behind this evil, see behind this hatred, see behind this vindictiveness of this human being, um, that this is someone for whom Christ became a criminal. This is someone for whom Christ came and lived and suffered and died. That Jesus became the worst of sinners who ever lived. Um, that he might take your sin and mine and the sin of the world upon himself and away from you. So, yeah, I know. I get you. Though. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. All right. Um, summary. Shortly after the creation of the world, some of the spirit beings, so this kind of goes back to the beginning, right? Where, where did the devil come from? Some of the spirit beings or angels that God had created rebelled against his authority as a result, God cast them out of heaven and away from his presence, but misery loves company. And so Satan, the leader of the fallen angels, tempted Adam and Eve to also disobey God, and he succeeded in bringing sin into the world. Adam and Eve believed the devil's lie and ruined the perfect relationship they had with the Lord. They brought sin and death into the world and rightly deserved God's eternal punishment in hell. After the fall into sin, human beings are hopelessly lost in sin. There was nothing that anyone could do to change that situation. That's why God came up with a plan. The only plan that could rescue mankind from its sinful predicament. God's plan involved one specific future descendant of Eve who would destroy the devil's power on behalf of mankind. The rest of the Bible makes it perfectly clear that this future offspring of Eve was none other than Jesus Christ, son of God and the savior of the world. In the next uh, three lessons, we're going to learn more about how Jesus freed us from our sinful condition. And that's where we are going to start tonight. Got about 15 minutes left. Before we do, any questions on lesson four? <coughs> yeah, Brian. Um, I think my question is why it's not, it doesn't have an issue with sin. Sure. Why is there anything Is there a common discussion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, I think of a passage, Ryan asked kind of the opposite question, right? Um, I understand why there's sin and evil in the world. Why is there anything good? Um, and I would say a lot of this comes back to, um, you know, I, I always come back to the passage where Jesus says, um, you know, that uh, God causes the sun 
to shine and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Why is there any semblance of good in the world? Um, because God, God gives it. God allows it, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's more of God's act of preservation, right? Um, in addition to that, I would say, why is there good in the world? Um, man, the world would hate me for saying that. But the, the reason that there's good in this world still is because there are Christians in the world. Um, you know, when Jesus says, you are salt and light, the, the, the point of that is not just that our job is to make people happy. Salt was a preservative in the ancient world. Um, this is how you cured meat and you stopped it from, from uh, you know, becoming bad and, and rotten. And God says, um, I'm going to plant Christians in the world um, so that the world doesn't rot. So, that, I mean, that's a high calling for Christians, right? Um, so, yeah, should, should we do what we can to try and preserve the planet? Uh, absolutely, sure. Um, we, we are managers of God's creation, just as God told Adam and Eve, um, you, you're going to be in charge of all of this, right? Um, but I would say it's not just the planet, it's, it's even more importantly the people. Um, so, yeah, and, and kind of the question Mitzi asked, that idea of um, that kind of re renewal, that renewing of the image of God in Christians, right, where um, God, God has positioned himself throughout the world, not just in a generic way that, you know, God is everywhere and in all things. Yes, that's true. Um, um, the Lord says, do I not fill heaven and earth? Sure, he's everywhere. But he's also here specifically, and this is kind of, you know, the, the doctrine of vocation is that God hides behind the masks of people. He puts human beings on as his masks, and he does and accomplishes his good purposes in the world through people. Um, so that even an unbeliever, the, the guy who's checking out my groceries at Costco, can be a hardened atheist, um, and yet he does a beautiful thing for me, and, and God works through him, right? Um, so I, I think that's, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So I don't know if, if, if I would use the phrase common grace, just because I think, you know, I mean, with the title of the class, Grace Book, right? When, when we tend to talk about grace, we typically would limit that and really kind of focus that in on Jesus, right? That, that undeserved love that God has shown in Christ, um, as opposed to just God's love of the world, God's care and compassion on the world, um, the, yeah, the, his providence, right? God's preservation. Um, the, the world still exists because God wants it to, right? Is that a, okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's a great question. Yeah, you're right. Um, Peter can tell you more about that. So um, that's Peter's background. So um, yeah, no, it's a good question. So I, I get what they mean by it. Yeah, I, I got no problem with it. But I think, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. I, I would say it just isn't the best word because it, then, it, it, then it becomes very, common grace can very easily, at least in my mind, it can, be, it can become universalism, right? Where, um, anyway, so, all right. Okay, let's get into lesson five then. 
Jesus in the Old Testament, the man of grace. Different perspective of the mountains. Um, these are pictures that I took um, hiking my way up Mount Massive um, in uh, Colorado, one of the 14ers. If you've ever heard of those, they got a number of 14,000 foot mountains. This is one of them that I did a number of years ago while I still could. Um, and the point is, you know, you're down there on the ground and you look up at a mountain. I, I still remember the first time I kind of actually reached the summit of a mountain peak and I was blown away that it actually wasn't like a pointed peak. Like you just see it from so far away and you're like, somebody was standing on that, they'd fall off. But you get up to the top and it's very flat and you, you see a lot more of the, uh, um, the, the, the topography and the geography of the layout. Your perspective changes. The, the mountain didn't change. But the, the detail and the perspective that you gained as you kind of got into it and got up higher, and then when you got to the top, then you could kind of see everything, right? This is a little bit of, of kind of the picture that we're going to use when it comes to Jesus in the Old Testament. You look back on that passage from Genesis 3.15, and that's like standing at the bottom of the mountain and going, I can, I can see a little bit of the top through the clouds, Right? Um, an offspring, a descendant of Eve is going to come and, and he's going to destroy the devil's work. When, how, what will it look like? What will it take to accomplish that? None of those things had been, had been told yet. But as we progress and move through the Old Testament, the perspective becomes more clear. We get to see who this Christ is, who this Messiah is, where he will be born, what he will suffer and endure, what he will accomplish. And that's really what we're going to look at now in this next lesson. Um, a lot of people think the Old Testament is the story of Israel. And the New Testament is the story of Jesus. When in reality, the Old Testament and the New Testament both have the same focus and purpose. It is Jesus, right? It's just one is pointing ahead. And then one kind of lays out the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he did. And then the epistles and everything after is kind of looking back, right? But, but maybe you'll remember the passage where, where Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees, right? He talks about how you, you love the Old Testament because you think that if you, you do all of the things written in the Old Testament, you're going to somehow earn favor with God. But he says, these are the words that have been written about me. And he's talking about the Old Testament. Because he's quoting it in the Gospels. He's not talking about the Gospels. He's living the Gospels. He's talking about what was his Bible at the time. And what was Jesus' Bible? It was the Old Testament. The whole point and purpose of the Bible is to point to Jesus. Whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, it does not matter. And so my Jewish friends, when they want to tell me, you know, as a crazy Christian, you know, well, the Old Testament is about, about our people. And I kind of go, well, if that's the case, it doesn't paint them in a very good light. I don't necessarily know that I'd want to claim that. Um, because what I see in the Old Testament is God's people repeatedly failing him and God repeatedly exercising his patience and his love for them. So if nothing else, wouldn't the Old Testament be the story of Israel's God and how awesome and gracious he is? Yeah, that's the point. And here's the epitome of that love and that patience and that grace. It is God taking on human flesh and coming in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? All right. 
we're, we're obviously the Old Testament is a thick chunk of the Bible, and we're not going to go through most of it. I'm going to highlight a couple of things for you, but I want you to have kind of a general understanding in your mind of the timeline of the Old Testament. And I think you can do that if you can remember five dates, five dates, that's it, okay? The first one is um, 2000 BC. 2000 BC is about when Abraham comes on the scene. Okay. Um, and of course, Abraham is going to be the one that the Lord makes this promise to. We're going to look at it on the next page. But Abraham, kind of an important guy, right? Um, uh, you see his son and his grandson. You got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. And those 12 sons are the ones that will become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Joseph is probably most notable. You remember the story of Joseph. Um, fast forward 500 years, and you've got Moses. Moses is 1500 BC. Um, and then who is the, the leader of Israel right after Moses? That's Joshua. Okay, Joshua is the one who actually leads God's people into the promised land. Fast forward another 500 years and you get to David. 1000 BC, that's David. Okay, so the whole kind of Davidic kingdom and reign, David, Solomon, the building of the temple in the Old Testament, all of that is about 1000 BC. And then the other two are kind of tricky. Okay, There's, they're like specific dates. And that is if you kind of go down, if you look right to the next, to, to the right of David, I, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to remember. I'm asking you to remember. There's no quiz or test. I'm just maybe encouraging. Just kind of help you in your Bible reading. 930 BC is when the, 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 the divided kingdom happened. Ten tribes of Israel to the north two tribes to the south, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel. You don't need to remember 930 BC, but just simply remember that there was a time um, around the time, shortly after the time of David, when Israel divided itself into really two nations, okay? The two dates that, that I think are probably even more important are the two beneath that. 722 BC, is when Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. And then uh, about 150 years later, 586 BC, is when Babylon conquers the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom really does end up becoming more important because the southern kingdom is where you have Jerusalem. Okay, that's kind of the capital city. That's where the temple was. That's why... Even though God allowed Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom, the people who lived in the southern kingdom said, well, it'll never happen to us because we have the temple. God loves us more than he loves our, our relatives to the north. It makes total sense why they worshiped idols and, and God, you know, let them be destroyed. It would never happen to us. And in 586 BC, of course it does, right? So if you can remember Abraham 2000, Moses 1500, David 1000, and then 722 and 586 BC, the fall of the, the northern and southern kingdom, everything that you read in the Old Testament pertaining to 98% of, of the Old Testament will, will fit into kind of that timeline and really kind of pertain and revolve around those, those people and those dates. Okay? Questions? All right. Um, I'm going to stop there then because this is kind of just a good 
bot to stop and it's eight o'clock. Um, we'll pick up here next week with the prophecies about the Savior. So we're going to look at a number of Old Testament passages, um, events, people, and then we're going to see what does this actually teach us about Jesus? This happened 2,000 years before the first Christmas story, um, but it tells us a lot about the coming Christ. What? Why? Okay? And that's what we're going to look at. So we'll begin there in about 2000 BC with Abraham next week. Okay? Um, does anybody have any questions or any thoughts before we wrap up tonight? All right. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening. And I'll uh, see you next week or on Sunday. Take care.